a writer named Robert Hubble is not Jewish. Both he and his wife are observant Catholics. But earlier this year, he wrote a really moving essay called My Kippah, in which he explains that one of his most cherished possessions is a kippah. And the story, as he tells it, is that he didn't grow up knowing anybody who was Jewish. And the first time he ever met a Jew was in law school. He was a 1L, and he met this woman and had instant connectivity and chemistry, and they became fast platonic friends and study partners. And their friendship continued to flourish after law school. She and her husband moved to the suburbs. And in the suburbs, they joined a synagogue, a suburban synagogue. And in that synagogue, they joined a chavurah, a group of six, seven, eight families at a similar age and stage where they do life together, like we have. And Robert Hubble and his wife also moved to the same suburb. And so his friend invited the Hubbles to be the Catholic members of their synagogue chavurah, and they said, of course, we'd be delighted. So before you know it, Robert Hubble and his wife were attending Shabbat dinners with the chavurah members. They were going to Pesach seders with the chavurah members. They went to Na'ila services with the chavurah. I don't know that they fasted all 25 hours, but at least they went to Na'ila. And they did the breakfast uh, with different Chavara hosts. And of course, they also were in an age and stage where these Chavara families were having children. And so the Hubbles joined along with all of the birth and Brit and naming type life cycle ceremonies. And Robert Hubble, as a gesture of respect, whenever he would go to one of these beautiful, joyful religious gatherings, he would wear kind of the white nylon synagogue kippah. And he would wear it during the gathering. When the gathering was over, he took it off. Fine. So one fine day, his friend, this first Jew that he ever knew, who invited him into the chavurah, she has a son. And the son has a bris. And of course, Robert Hubble and his wife are at the bris. And of course, he brings the white nylon synagogue kippah. And right before the bris begins, this friend says to him, no, Robert, you've been a member of the Chavarah for too long. You deserve your own kippah. And she gives him a beautiful knit kippah. And she says, this is your kippah. Wear it whenever you're at our Chavarah events. And he wears it for the first time at this woman's son's bris. And then as the years go on, he puts on his kippah at Shabbos dinners and at Pesach seders and at Na'ila and at the breakfast and at all the life cycle ceremonies. And then he writes that at a certain point, he found himself wearing this kippah, not only for the happy things, but he started going to funerals of the Chavara families. And then one terrible day, and this triggered his essay, My Kippah. He had to wear the kippah to bury his friend. He writes, 
On Tuesday, I helped to bury my dear friend. She was 65. As I approached the grave, I wondered, what profound thought is one supposed to hold in mind while helping to bury a lifelong dear friend? My mind was blank. No profound thoughts. All that came to my mind was, I am wearing the kippah that I wore to her firstborn's bris. That kippah symbolizes the wellspring of our relationship, our mutual respect for one another's faith traditions. The taut stitches of the kippah mirror the strong bonds of family and friends that she wove into the beautiful tapestry of her life. She is gone, but I will hold tight to that kippah as a physical manifestation of her life, just as I will hold fast to the community of family and friends that is her enduring legacy and testament to the world. There is so much poignancy and pathos. There is so much Sadness, obviously, and also beauty to this story, my kippah. The friendship of people who, who make it through the years and their friendship just deepens and grows. The mutual respect of friends for each other's different faith traditions. The changes that life can bring. How it is, how it is that the same keeper could be worn for a bris of the boy and the funeral of the mother of the boy. How it is that the same keeper could be worn during the greatest joy and the most heartbreaking sorrow. Well, when I finished reading this keeper, I knew it was true. It was true. And then I wondered, what text can help us grapple with its truth? If the Kippa story is true, same Kippa, bris. Same Kippa, you blink twice, funeral of the mother of the bris. If that's true, and it is, and we know it is, how are we supposed to live our lives in response? What text, what text, what text, what text? And then I remembered. I remembered exactly the text. Forty years ago, in 1983, in the fall of 1983, I met Shira. We were both law students. And one fine fall day, I'm with her in her dorm room, and the mail comes. And in the mail, her father, who was a conservative rabbi at a congregation in Atlanta, I knew that, I hadn't met him yet, he had sent Shira some cassettes of his High Holiday Sermons for 1983. And he labeled them what each sermon was about. And on one cassette, this is 80s technology, he writes a Yusker sermon. So we're in Shira's dorm room and she says, hey, do you want to listen to my dad's Yusker sermon? <laughs> and I thought that is a very interesting romantical move. A Yuskor date via cassette. That worked for me. I said, of course, I would love to hear your dad's Yisker sermon two or three weeks after Yisker. That works. So we, in, in her room, 
with 80s technology, we listened to his sermon. And I was 22 at the time. I didn't know anything. But all I knew was that this sermon and this rabbi who delivered it was a total wow. And he said something in that sermon that was so profound. It's not just that I remember it 40 years later. He said something in that sermon that was so profound, I've thought about it most of the days during those 40 years ever since. It just completely landed and stuck like nothing has ever landed and stuck. So we get married, I become part of the family, and I'm like, Dad, where's the sermon? And nobody can find the sermon. It's like the Holy Grail. It's this iconic thing, I can't find the sermon. And then on February 28th, our father dies. And we go to his apartment in Jerusalem. And we start cleaning out his apartment. And I am bound and determined, I am going to find this sermon if it's the last thing I do. And wouldn't you know it, that in the bottom of a drawer, underneath a bunch of paper and other sermons, was the sermon, and this is it. This is the sermon that he gave in the early 80s. And I have it now in my office next to a picture of my father as a young rabbi. And the title of the sermon is Growing Old and Growing it's growing older and growing old. Growing older and growing old. And the text that he wrestles with is from the Machsor. Al tashlichenu li'et zikna, kichlot kochenu al ta'azvenu. Al tashlichenu li'et zikna, do not cast us off when we are in old age. Kichlot kochenu al ta'azvenu. When our strength starts to ebb and wane, please, please, please do not abandon us. And there are a couple of things about this sermon that when I read it 40 years later are just more powerful than ever. One is that he offered the sermon when he was a healthy 50-something-year-old. And he predicts precisely in his mid-50s what Arnold Goodman, when he was 93 and 94, would personally experience. Here is what he says in this sermon from 40 years ago about aging, words that he would experience personally and quite directly. He writes, and then he lives. We all grow older. We are all growing older. What is sobering and frightening is if we live long enough, at some point we will grow old. Growing old means not being able to take care of yourself as you once did. Growing old is a body that doesn't quite work the way it used to or doesn't function at all. Growing old is Medicare forms. Growing old is Shalom Home and the unbelievable alienation from reality that besets people in even the very best of such facilities. Growing old 
his depleted strength and energy. In his 50s, my father would say these words. In his 90s, he would live them. The other thing that is just so powerful and that stuck with me ever since, I heard it 40 years ago, is he shares the teaching of a Belgian singer and poet named Jacques Brel, who teaches that life is a carousel and the carousel is always turning and the conductor is always shouting, next, next. And if that's true, and it is, then that makes demands upon how we live our lives every day. Next, next. Savor every single day that we are alive while we are living it. Don't let even one day go unsavored, unappreciated. Take nothing, take no day for granted. Never wish away a day. Never wish away a week. Never wish away, never wish away. Savor, savor, savor. Next, next. When we have had a loss, and we all have, and we all do, and we all will, love what we have left. Next, next, show up. Show up for the people in our lives because they don't live forever, and neither do we. Next, next, tell the people in your life that you love them while you and they are still alive. Next, next, fix what is broken in your life while you still can. Now, Robert Hubble and his wife and his Jewish friend and her husband and all of the other members of this Chavurah and the kippah itself, we're all on the carousel of life together, and it turns. They met in their 20s when their future was bright and young and full of promise and roses and blessings. Next, they moved to the suburbs and joined a Chavurah and create connections with six, eight families and do life together. Next, they get nachas from each other's families as they grow up. First, the fun stuff, the births and the bar mitzvahs and the bat mitzvahs, and then more fun stuff. After the bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs come the weddings, and they dance at each other's weddings. Next, next. And then the members of the chavarah start aging, growing older. And now they're in their 50s and their 60s and their 70s. And now they're dealing with disappointments and heartache and illness and funeral. The carousel is always turning and the conductor is always shouting, next, next, and what do we do in response? And here's the good news. There is a right course. There is a best practice for what we do in response. And that best course, that best practice is to say to the conductor, we're living our life now, now. But the problem is that it's not automatic. 
and it's not a given. It's a choice. And how many of us don't do that? We don't live our life now, now. We don't, because we're in the, wa we're in the waiting room. We're in the waiting room, not in the arena. We're in the waiting room waiting for something that we desperately yearn for and long for and pray for and hope for and dream of, that that should happen. And then, when it happens, our life can finally begin. I'm single. My life is really going to begin when I find my partner. We're married, but our life is really going to begin when we have children. We're a middle-aged couple, and it's good, but our life is really going to begin when we have grandchildren. My life is really going to begin when I can finally, finally, finally retire. I don't mean that for myself. <laughs> when I can finally retire and start taking those trips. I want to take trips. My life is going to begin when I'm on my first cruise to Alaska post-retirement. My life is really going to begin when I finally feel better. My life is finally going to begin when this distant event quivering over the horizon finally, finally happens for me. Then my life will begin. There's only two problems with this. What if it doesn't happen? And what about all the todays while we're waiting for tomorrow? Get out of the waiting room. Get out of the waiting room. Get into the arena. Brace yourself to wear the kippah through all seasons. And when the carousel turns, and when the conductor shouts, next, next, say to the conductor, we're living our life now, now. As the poet Mary Oliver put it in her classic poem, The Summer Day. Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Gemar Chatimah